Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Am I on? Yep. Let me tell you about next week's topic before we call Gary back up. Uh, the federal government uh, has recently announced that it's going to consolidate four programs into uh, two, and uh, uh, that regards their Aboriginal, their urban Aboriginal strategy. And so next week we have Linda Many Guns and Jacinda Weiss, who are addressing the changes that the federal government has made to urban uh, Aboriginal strategies and what that means. So we'll get into some urban native issues. Gary, do you want to come back up and uh, and uh, invite you to find the microphone over there and let's put some questions to our speaker. Yep. Hello. Somebody's turned it back off again. It should be on. Should be on. Yeah. Gerald Rubick. Um, well, we did away with the crow's nest green uh, situation, yeah. and with the CP, uh, railroads encouragement, we have inland terminals. We had a man come in, take over CPR, let 4,500 people go, drove up share value, and we live in a free enterprise society. My question is, is that what we're going to live with, or should we be doing something about it? Do we need controls? Controls is the wrong word, but certainly some direction when you have a monopoly, and railroads are a monopoly, mm -hmm. and people are suffering for it, obviously. Thank you. No, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked it because, see, the morale at some of these uh, railways right now is not very good because all this, they've let go all the other people. They've let locomotives go, and now all of a sudden they're saying, okay, we've got to move a million metric tons a week. So how are we going to do this? Like how... And, and I understand what you're saying, the crow rape got taken away. But the way it works now is, is that with the railway cap, you can st the railways can still move as much grain as they want, and they can still make as much money as they want. The railway cap doesn't mean that there's a limit on anything. It's just a cap on which, which grain they can move where. So with the new Bill C-30 that's going to go through now, they're going to make better inter-switching, it's called. So like the grain that's actually in Lethbridge... If they got CP rail to take the local, the train, they could take it down to Shelby, and it could go out through that way to Portland. Or let's take it in Edmonton, it could go and st uh, they could take CP locomotives and cars, could go off CP tracks, and it could go up to uh, CN rail, and then CN would pull it out. But if it comes out of CP area, which is southern Alberta, southern Saskatchewan, that would come out of there, and, and CP has to take it to the other lines, and then CP takes it out. So right now... We're not using Prince Rupert enough, but that's because 99% of it that goes there is through CN Rail. So what we're trying to do is, is make it so there's, there can be more communications with them. Like the CP Rail can't run on CN tracks, right? So as you understand that. But they can pull the, local, the train to go over there. So what this is going to do, if I'm CP and, and the government or CN says, hey, you've got unit trains sitting there, we've got locomotives, you bring them over to our place, we'll pull them out. I'm just like, wait a minute, maybe I'll go get my locomotives back down in the States and pull them myself. As a businessman, you want to be making all the money you can. 
So I understand what you're saying. The crow rate, when it went out, it was like, you know, we're going to change and make it better. But what happened this year with this bottleneck that we had with all this uh, grain coming out, last year in July and August, hardly any grain got moved. People were concerned about that. Uh, why wasn't there more grain moved? But there's lots of vacations happen in July. So there's things now with this new service level agreement that we're working on with RITS that we're bringing all of these things to a priority with the federal government. My name is Henning Mundell. <clears throat> By the way, I used to be a plant breeder at the research station, not in winter wheat, but in, oh. in other crops, like be dry beans <laughs> and so on. I've seen you there. <laughs> yes, right. Um, my question is, in your talk, I don't think I heard you uh, in the concern about the trains and train cars. You haven't mentioned, or unless I missed it, a relationship between the transport of oil and on the railways increasing and the impact of that on the grain transport, please. Yeah, thank you. That was good. Actually, I got asked that at my table here when we were having lunch, too. Uh, the oil companies right now have 5,000 more cars on oil order, oil cars. But uh, the rail, the oil oil should be in pipelines. I think it's way, way easier to move. I think that it's more safe to move through the pipelines. But, uh, and then... There's lots of potash, but like if Potash Corporation in Saskatchewan says we want to move a unit train to Vancouver to their to load on a ship there, they pull in, they load 100 cars, 140 cars, whatever they got, they have their sidings lined up, away it goes. So then with oil, what they're doing is, is they add them in because they don't have a lot of cars. If you take uh, grain cars, there's 100, let's just say 100,000 grain cars. I can't give the exact number. There's 100,000 grain cars. But at oil cars, there's like... 5,000. So if they if they double the capacity of oil goes, that's 10,000 grain cars. So, but if uh, if grain was doubled, that's 200,000 grain cars. If you understand what I'm saying. So when they say oil's oil production, oil movement on the railways up 50 percent or up 100 percent, it is. There's no question about it. But it's not. They don't have as many grain cars. I mean, oil cars as there is grain cars. But is it a concern for us because the more tr congestion on the tracks? to get the grain out, get the potash out, get the coal out. Get the, when we had our meeting last week up with Minister Ritz up in Calgary, there was the mining sector was there, there was the oil sector was there, the fertilizer sector, because fertilizer's got to get moved by rail. The anhydrous gets moved out of Medicine Hat all across western Canada on uh, the rail cars, the anhydrous. And then you've got the coal sector, the uh, mining sector. All this stuff gets moved out on rails. And so a concern is, is that... They're going to keep uh, bottlenecking it. So is more oil going to get moved on the rails? Absolutely. Do the people in Ontario and Quebec care? Probably not. Because, see, they're concerned. The, the XL pipeline, if it goes from uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, down through North Dakota and down to Texas, if you lived in Ontario and Quebec, would that really influence you or bother you? But what, what if we build an oil pipeline from Saskatchewan across over through Manitoba, Ontario, and then over to Quebec to the St. Lawrence Seaway, then that way we could start supplying the people in eastern Canada with our oil. Then that would affect the economy and it would help. It would help in look forward to the future of uh, more growth in those in those in those provinces. So it's a big question. The oil industry—they're glad that I'm not throwing them under the bus because I do a lot of interviews. But it is a concern that there's going to be more on there. There's 4% more growth in the railways in, in Canada and the United States every year, 4% more. So in 10 years, 
you know, that's like 20% more growth overall. So how on earth are we going to move all this? There's going to be more, the rail's going to be more important. Okay, I won't go on too much. <laughs> go ahead. Hi, uh, Buck Spencer. Um, do you think that maybe instead of slapping the railroads across the wrists, that maybe an incentive should have been given to the railroads? If you can move so many tons of grain, you're going to get an incentive. We'd save on the demurrage. And uh, did anybody ever think of that? They're moving oil cars because they're making more money moving the oil cars. They've, they've leased engines down into the United States because that's where they're going to make the most money. This is a private company. It's going to be run like a private business. So don't you think that we could have done it the other way around? Well, if you go back into September, and I appreciate the comments, Buck. If you go back into September, the grain companies went to the railways and to the port authorities and said, we got the biggest crop we're ever going to have in history. So why wouldn't CP or CN say, you know what, let's gear up, boys, let's go make some money, let's move all this stuff? Because there's not a cap on the amount of money they can make. There's just, uh, it's a grain railway entitlement. So they could move it up. So I understand what you're saying, Buck, but they, they didn't do nothing. Like, if, if anything, the, the grain that was moved through Western Canada through to Vancouver was down 4% from the year before. So how come they didn't go up 4%? They had, the, they had the opportunity to move it. Now, are you going to get more money for moving an oil car than to move a grain car? Maybe so be it. But uh, I think that uh, those are concerns we'll have to work on. I don't know how to answer that one. That's a good question. But, you know, that's why, that's why we do all these political meetings. That's all I can tell you. But they didn't want to do it. It's just, I'm just saying, why didn't they move it, you know? So I don't know. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Mary Shillington, thanks for your talk. Uh, I, I was noting that uh, since the wheat board has gone, then the farmers, I gather, are making these uh, commissions. And, and so I'm wondering, who's paying for the cost for those commissions, and how is it different having the commissions over the wheat board? And I don't know if farmers had to pay something towards the wheat board. So I, can you explain a little bit of the difference there? Um. Well, we were paying through the Canadian Wheat Board, too. So we, the farmers were always paying. They, um, it was always like, uh, I get, and I think that's why a lot of the farmers had their backs up against the wall, is, is that they wouldn't tell us how much it was costing us. So now with the commissions, is it's at, I, I pay 70 cents a ton off, off of our, my grain that I haul in to the Alberta Wheat Commission, and we're taking that money, and we use it provincially and then federally with the grain growers and with cereal councils, you know, canola councils, so on. So we're, we're trying to help fill this void, but we never had the opportunity to sell our grain into other places or other countries on our own. You know, you could with oats, you could with uh, canola, but with wheat and barley, you couldn't do it. So with this uh, opportunity to, to, move, to move it forward, pretty well all the farmers are on side with it. But these commissions are all totally funded by the actual farmer. So it's our money that we're using to, to, to do this. And is it the problem that we got the bottleneck in Vancouver and the railways because the wheat board's not there? there there's never been this big a crop before. And uh, sure, there's going to be growing pains of grain companies if they're ordering too many ships into Vancouver. And, uh, th and then they didn't tell the railways that they had to haul it all. I think there's some problems there, but that's why there's so many ships in Demurrage. So it's going to be growing pains, but yeah, the you know the farmer is paying for you know for pretty well all of it. 
So. Thank you, Mr. Chair. My name is Joseph Natuck. I have uh, several questions regarding uh, your presentation and other things. you want to start with one and then come back and ask the others if, uh, if we need to? It's very, very, very short. Okay, go for it. Just locally, comment on that. Saskatchewan involvement seems limited. I only heard the word Saskatchewan once. Ukraine, do you have any ideas of the challenges they have? Producing wheat, and lastly, twinning really uh, tw twinning the railroads to enhancing transportation. Thank okay, you. good. I can go. I can do a couple of them real quick. The biggest concern that Ukraine has right now is is how stable is their government. And if I was going to be buying gr grain from Ukraine, would I want to be getting the grain out before I pay for it, or do I want to pay for it before I get the grain out? So there's some big concerns there with Ukraine on that part. But they export the majority of it in the first uh, three months of when it's produced. So they'll fire it out of there to get it out. But if I'm, the, a lot of the companies are very concerned about buying from Ukraine right now. The twinning of the tracks, I talked to uh, the head guy from uh, CN Rail, and I said to him, we've got to twin the tracks to get it through there. And he said as long as there's sidings that are built in strategic locations and, and they're long enough for the train units, he says that's not a problem. Because that was concerns I had, like concerns getting them in and out of uh, Vancouver. Is the traffic there interfering with the trains going in and out, and are they getting the empty cars back out fast enough? So those are concerns. What was the other two? Oh. Okay. Um, the question was: Is uh, why didn't I talk more about Saskatchewan? Well. Saskatchewan isn't as far along as Alberta is. The people in Saskatchewan, they say to me, how come you guys in Alberta want to run everything and do everything? And I said, well, you guys had an NDP government to take care of you, and we didn't. But, <laughs> but, but, that's a, but it's a little bit of truth to that. It is, is that when, you, when uh, you know, you're always, uh, the wheat board's taking care of you or your government's taking care of you, why would you start commissions? Why would you do that? But we're in consultations right now with the Saskatchewan Development Commission, the Saskatchewan Barley Commission, the Winter Cereals, you know, uh, the Pulse Commission, Canola Commissions. We talk to them people all the time. So when I'm in other countries talking in Asia or Singapore or wherever, I never talk Alberta or Saskatchewan. I talk Canadian. They're having a hard enough time finding where Canada is on the map, let alone where Lethbridge is, right? So, so you know, those are concerns. That, you know, we work with everybody. Okay, I'll go to the next. Uh, I'm Trevor Page, um, and I'm a retired director of the United Nations World Food Program. So much of your presentation resonated with me. I'm wondering whether you could comment on southern Alberta's potential for increased production, given the projections, UN projections, that demand for grain by 2050 is expected to double, and the effect of global climate change on grain production here in southern Alberta. In other words, do you see a bright future for grain in terms of Southern Alberta being able to meet the increasing demand globally? Yeah, that's good questions. Um, the process, and I, I should have related to the other question there, but like uh, having Ellison's here in Lethbridge, we're, it's very good 
opportunity for us to move more of our grain like locally and then also like the Quaker oatmeal plant down in Minneapolis. We can we can do stuff locally. You can't just talk about leopard. you got to talk about like Western Canada, Western United States. But as far as supply in the world, this year we grew like the biggest crop ever, and we can't get rid of them. So what we're trying to do, and one of my goals is, is can we make this so that in 10 years, if we produce this much grain every year, that we could get rid of it? Because we want to feed the world. You're right. Like when I'm down in uh, Indonesia, 250 million people in Indonesia, uh, there's still a lot of meat, rice three times a day. To have noodles once a day would be a treat. So that's a lot of wheat when you're talking. That's just one country, right? So as far as like uh, us us producing it with the better technology we have, with the better uh, plant you know plant breeding we're doing now, with the better we don't have to get into GMOs on everything. We don't. I'm not a big proponent of getting if you talk to the plant breeders about gmo wheat right now go up to the leopard research station <clears throat> they said we can still keep breeding it and making it yield they're talking about it. rob graff our plant breeder he said that in about two years he's got a new variety of winter wheat out that on dry land in southern alberta with an average rainfall it'll go 100 bushel the acre on dry land so why do you need gmo on that right but on the other hand i think that gmos are always going to be here you know, cotton, soybeans, corn, canola, because we need to breed in some resistance to resistance to bugs. They're they're working on some new varieties of uh, wheat and uh, corn that uh, it, it's nitrogen fixating and it's uh, uh, moisture fixating. So what I'm saying is is that you take the leaf on a on a wheat plant, a wheat, wheat uh, leaf on a corn plant during the night, it'll suck the nitrogen out of the air and it'll suck the moisture out of the air so that you can, in a a very dry area, you can have the plant continue to grow so I don't have to use as much fertilizer. It'll suck the nitrogen out of the air, and then also it'll suck the moisture out of the air during the night. So can some of that stuff be done with traditional breeding or with hybrid breeding without going into biotechnology? I don't know, but they're working on it now. So those are exciting things for us for the future, but as far as what we're doing now, I think that Ukraine, I think that, uh, you know, uh, Aust- Russia, they've got lots of land there that they can expand more on. Um, I don't see a problem in feeding the world for, for quite a few years to come. Uh, well, if you uh, came out to my farm in February and it was 30 below for two weeks and I couldn't start my car, I don't I don't get the climate change thing. But, <laughs> but yeah, like climate change... I don't know. I don't know if I want to go down that road right now. Trevor, you, you might want to go back to the mic. The, he, the question was, is, uh, you go ahead, sit down. The question is, is uh, do we want to worry about climate change with the Alberta Wheat Commission and with the Grain Growers of Canada? Is that right? And, and I think that that's something we should look at. Have we looked at it yet? No. That hasn't come into play. We've, not, we've never had, uh, this year we had the best crop ever. So ask the... I mean, the projections are that the climate is going to get warmer, that you're going to get more um, rainfall, mm-hmm. and you're going to have a longer growing season. Are you not looking at those considerations? Sure, yeah, so we'll, we'll be able to feed the world. So no do problem. you expect that in the next 20 years, production will increase, uh, production of grain will increase considerably in southern Alberta? Oh, yeah. No, it'll always continue with our better farming practice and our better technology and better rainfall. But if you remember the year 2000, it didn't rain one inch here the whole summer. 
and I lost so much money on my farm, I went and bought a gas station and started running it. So, I mean, uh, it can swing real wildly either way. But I don't know if I'm answering your question right. And, and I, I, I'm quite <laughs> keen to actually make it clear that Canada has been losing out for decades on not being able to compete with the U.S. and the Australians on the international market. And I hope that the structure that we're putting together is such that uh, that's not going to continue. And therefore, one has to monitor these various global considerations. Okay, so what your question is, is you, you want me to, as a grain farmer, to lower my quality of my grain so that I can produce more grain so that I can meet with what you're... Huh? We'll, we'll have to continue this one later. But no, I think that we're going to continue to be able to keep growing big crops. I really do. And the global, the global change thing, we'll have to go over that one another time. Go ahead. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Um, my question relates to the producer's inability to ship grain probably lowers the price of grain a bit because of, uh, you know, if they can't ship, they might need to uh, sell some grain at a cheaper price. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, who might benefit from that? Uh, the livestock sector is going to benefit from that greatly. Uh, you know, if the if we can't get rid of it, we're going farmers will just sell it for a lower price just to make sure they got some cash flow coming. I know a lot of our feed grains from down in this uh, southern Alberta region right now are going down into southern Montana and southern Idaho. There's trucks that are bringing up canola and to the to Canberra, and there's trucks that are bringing up uh, fertilizer, and then they're taking back a lot of our feed wheat, CPS wheats and stuff like that. They're all going back down down that way, and the farmers down there are selling their grain for a little higher price because their basis is less in um, in Idaho and Montana, and it's uh, and and so yeah, there's a lot of feed stocks that are going down there, and the the, the feedlot producers or the or the end any of the end users that are using um, CPS wheats or lower quality wheats, uh, they're they're benefiting greatly from it. So. Yeah, it is. It's kind of bad when you know our basis level here in Canada is like two dollars a bushel. So what the basis means is that for the handling fees, for the transportation, and for tookage, I guess is the best way of saying it, is is that you can, um, you know, and down in the states it's like a dollar, a dollar twenty-five a bushel. So yeah, there's people up here making money off of us, but it. That's why I want to look at the whole transportation issue over the long haul. Can we make this work so that in ten years? we can get rid of this bigger crop, you know, can keep our prices coming to the farmers because the farmers are the backbone of the, of the whole situation. But, I mean, if I was a grain company or a railway and I can make more money in their private sectors, like Buck was saying, I mean, they're, they're going to try and uh, make their money off of us too. So... If nobody... If, if nobody while he's going to the mic, uh, let me ask a, a quick question. Uh, your comments about the number of different players in the transportation industry and the difficulty of getting them all to work together, especially two different companies, makes me wonder if the government, if the farmers wouldn't benefit from a government-appointed transportation coordinator or market coordinator or something that would uh, help 
Mr. Uh, businessman A talk to B and C mm-hmm. and uh, get something to happen? Yeah, I think that that's kind of what we're doing next week. There's uh, Canada Grain Council meetings are in Winnipeg. I've been invited to go down there and participate in them. And the railways will be there. The port authorities will be there. The grain companies will be there. Uh, grain Commission, SIGI, uh, Grain Institute, they're all going to be there. And they'll all be players in, uh, in putting this together. But the Canada Grain Council, it has a job to look after part of that. The, the Cereal Council is starting. They're going to have to look after part of that. So, you know, you're right. We need to figure out some way to make it work better. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I've, I've never done this before. Two questions. Uh, my name, is, again, is Joseph Natuck. I, I didn't get an answer to the process locally uh, uh, question, but the other one I have is since the CSEB Canadian Wheat Board has been gone for almost two years, have you folks done an assessment of the impact of that negative or positive or neutral? On, on, on the wheat producing industry? If you talk to all of the, the big farmers, they're, they're very, very happy that, uh, you know, there's an open market that you can sell. If you talk to some of the smaller farmers, they're saying, well, you know, you know the wheat board was pretty good for us. And I understand that. I'm, you know, like uh, you, now that in the new world, you're going to have to market your grain. So I've already got like 70% of my grain sold for this coming fall that I haven't even put in the ground yet. So you better learn how to, you know, market it better. And and I want to answer your question about the processing. <laughs> if there could be more processors, more malt companies here to sell the malt out of here, I, I agree with you. If there could be more, um, if we could have a Quaker oat plant here in Lethbridge or in Tabor, the opportunities are now where you could do it and let's get on with it. So the thing is we got to figure out a way do we, do we want to export the raw product out of here so that they process it over in the other countries, or do we want to do some of the processing here to move it out? And that's where you're getting at, like with the oil industry, too. The oil industry said, should we make the into gasoline here and get the, keep the jobs here and then ship the gas, or should we be shipping the oil? So those are concerns that, you know, they're, they're going to continue on. People are going to always worry about it. My name is Henry Heinen, and, and I'm not a farmer, so I'm asking this question with some trepidation. But you as a farmer, what I read and hear, the grain prices from a year ago are Mm down 40%. That's right. So you grow this huge crop, you get 40% less. So in your view Mm -hmm. of things, would you rather grow 60 bushels, I'd say five bucks or 100 bushels is two bucks? (laughs) Yeah, but this gentleman over here told me we have climate change and I gotta produce more, so I'm kinda stuck, so. (laughs) But what, (laughs) well, I understand what you're saying. If you go back into the days of Oklahoma, they went and broke up all the all Oklahoma. You guys have all seen the movies and read the stories. And then they and they just says, well, we only got two bucks for it, so let's grow more next year. So then next year they grew more and they sold it for a buck. So I understand what you're saying. But on the other hand, farmers are entrepreneurs too. We want to grow a good crop. So what I'll do right now is I'll forward assess: Should I be growing canola? Plant more canola. Should I be planting more oats? Should I be planting more, you know, uh, you know, you know, wheat, barley, malt, barley, whatever should be planting. So you ha- you have to look at it in the future. What what's going to cost you for fertilizer, inputs, chemicals, also on, put it all together, and then look at it from a big picture, and then just go down the road. But 
farmers are not going to cut back on using fertilizer and they're not going to cut back on growing a crop because if you can do your marketing right and hopefully we can get the transportations figured out then there's opportunity there but that's the way the farmer thinks is like in the oklahoma days you know the dirty 30s are starting we can't get rid of our grain so let's grow more of it you know and that's just and that's my mentality too i'm i'm going to fertilize for the best crop i can and the plant breeders are saying i'm going to produce 100 bushel winter wheat crops on dry land that's the way they're they're trained to do it too so those are con- going to continue so if the only way that you could stop it is if you did like the U.S. did about 30 years ago, they put in all that CRP program down in the States, put it all down into grass, the, the farmer gets paid 40 bucks a year and you can't touch it, can't graze it, can't hay it, can't nothing. And if you go down into Montana, there's still lots of it. So like in the future, they say, well, we're not going to maybe run out of grain. Like so Canada has a bad crop and Russia has a bad crop. They could always start, U.S. can start pulling more CRP land out of production. It's, it's marginal land. Okay, l- last question, Bev. Bev Mundell-Atherstone, thank you very much. I agree with you totally on value-added. We've got to be doing lots more value-added on our resources. Um, in regard to the Canadian Wheat Board, it was my understanding that they had train cars. Do you know what has happened to the train cars? Does the Wheat Board still own them, or uh, have some of them been sold? And if so, are they being used to transport wheat, and did they also have engines? Yeah, no, the, yeah, okay. No, no locomotives. They don't own any locomotives, but they own lots of train cars. And they're still being used, and they still get the benefit of it. The wheat board does. Okay? And some of them are owned by the Alberta government, and some are owned by the railways. But the, the person that owns that car gets the benefit of it. They still do. And the Canadian wheat board, um, they still, they're, they're buying a plant in uh, an elevator right now in Manitoba. And also, they're, uh, they still own a couple of the ships that they were going to make for in the Great Lakes to move across through there, and they still own those today. So the Canadian Wheat Board, like Ian White, he's a smart guy. Like, he's going to continue on to, to try and keep the Wheat Board going and moving forward. And, and if, you go to, if you go to fill their contracts right now with this bottleneck we've got, if you go to the Wheat Board and say, I want to sign up some more grain, they're full. Like, all their contracts are full. So don't think that just because uh, we went off that everybody's abandoned them. That's not true. There's still a lot of farmers that do use them and, and good on them. And, but no, the, pro, the, the, the wheat board is still making money today. I don't know how much, but they're making some money. And uh, the, 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 the infrastructure, they shouldn't say the ships and the cars, they still get the benefit of them. Okay. Shall we, shall we thank uh, Gary Stanford? Thank you.